Welcome to the Forerunner Church Podcast, where we highlight key messages and themes related to the body of Christ, inviting you to connect with our spiritual family as we grow in passion for Jesus and compassion for people. For more information, visit forerunnerchurch.com. The message for this morning is entitled, The Pursuit of Divine Pleasures, Being Holy and Blameless in Christ. Read a few verses here. Verse 3, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Father, we come before you. We ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation to touch our hearts and minds. Even this morning, you would cause, Lord, these glorious truths to become a living flame of fire within our souls, that you would awaken us, that you would stir us, that you would cause your people, your beloved saints, this spiritual family, Lord, to be established in the truths of the gospel that cause us to be confident and rejoice in you forever. We bless you, Lord. We love you. Jesus' name. We're looking at these truths Because these truths, the details of the gospel of Jesus, help to establish the human heart and confidence before God. And it's one of the most dynamic realities that we can have as believers is to stand in confidence in our hearts, to stand in confidence before the very living God of heaven and earth, the holy God, to approach him, as the word says, with boldness to have access before his throne of grace, to to live under the fountain of his delight and his joy in us. It's one of the great privileges we have as believers that have been brought into his kingdom by the work of the cross. The Lord wants us to be confident in him. He wants us to be assured that the work of the cross and faith in that work is enough to bring us into the family. Years ago, I was meeting with one of the moms in our community, and her family adopts children, and they adopt out of the foster care system. They adopt some of the hardest cases and the, the worst, most traumatized kind of cases, these kids and they bring them into their family and they're specially trained to work with them and love them and help to rehabilitate them in many ways, but they fully adopt them. They're not just fostering them. They, they bring them into their family. And as she was talking, she said this remarkable thing. She said, the first thing that we do, I, I, I thought the, you know, it was like the first thing we do is hide all the money in the house. She goes, no, the first thing we do is we take a new family picture and we put it on the mantle. And she said, the child has to know that they are legally a part of the family. 
And they have to know and be reminded again and again and again, regardless of how hard things get, regardless of how chaotic life may seem, regardless of what issues are coming to the surface, you have to be able to look up at that mantle and see your picture and be reminded, I am in the family, I'm in, I'm not out. And being in the family, being accepted, being legally qualified to be in the family of heaven is the starting place of the believer. Now, a whole bunch of us, we're like those adopted children. We're not just like them. I mean, verse 5, which we'll get to eventually, says that we are the adopted children. And all manner of us have various issues and traumas and propensities and evils and things that have been done to us and things that we ourselves have done. And those issues come up and they obfuscate, they, they confuse our position in the family as being legally within the family of heaven. And the Lord gives us these passages in Ephesians 1 and in other places throughout the New Testament and it's like a picture on the family mantle to remind us of our position, to remind us of our starting place within the Father's family. You're already in because of the work of the cross. And you don't have to work to get yourself more adopted into the kingdom. You don't have to get yourself more adopted into the family. You don't have to convince the heavenly father, Lord, please accept me. Please accept me. The way that we're accepted is by faith in Christ. And you're in. Your picture's on the mantle forever. That's one of the reasons why we have to examine these truths and look at these truths and contend for these truths. And later, Paul is praying in verse 17 of Ephesians 1. He's praying that the church in Ephesus would believe what is already true about them. That is I don't know what percentage, let's say half. That's half of the Christian battle is just believing what is true about us. Because if you believe something, then you'll act consistently on it. And here's the, here's the challenge with being adopted into the kingdom of God is that we still live in so many ways with this orphan mentality where we're not accepted and we're trying to earn our acceptance. Or we're not a part of the family. We feel disqualified. Our, our past of shame and guilt and our failures, they mount up and the enemy comes and he goes, you know what, you're not even a part of the family anyway. Your picture's not on the mantle. And that's why we as the people of God, not just hearing it in a message on a Sunday morning, but we have to reinforce these truths in our own lives. We have to ourselves read them and believe them and contend for them. We have to do it in the context of our families, in the context of our relationships. When we hear our children reflect something that is in disagreement with the gospel of Christ, we have to lovingly shepherd them in to the truths of God. Like, nah, nah that's, that's actually not true about you. You are accepted. You are beloved. You are highly esteemed not because of what you do, but because of what Christ has done, and you must receive his work as a gift in your life. The knowledge of the gospel regarding the change in our Christian legal position, and a, and a lot of these truths that Paul's talking about here in Ephesians 1, they're speaking of the change in our legal position before God. For example, we were previously orphaned from God. 
but at verse five says that we've been adopted as sons. That's a change in our legal position, but it's not a change in our living condition. It's not a change in the way that our emotions work, that our mind works, that, that our actions don't always follow what's legally true of us as being brought into his kingdom. And that's where the process of our sanctification comes into play. We have to take these truths and wash our minds with them again and again so that we consistently believe them and act upon them. That's called Christian maturity. In other words, we go to the mantle, we go to the living room of heaven, and we're like, hey, my picture is on the mantle. <laughs> the enemy has been lying to me that I'm, that I'm out, that God has given up on me. I'm too far gone. I'm, I'm too messed up. I'm dealing with the same issues today that I dealt with 10 years ago, and ugh, I'm just so wearied by the battle that surely must mean my identity in God has changed. And the Lord says, no, it hasn't changed. It actually hasn't changed. And I want you to drink of the truths of your position before me legally so that your actions and your will and your emotions fall into agreement about what is true of you because of the work of the cross. We grow in confidence, paragraph B. We grow in confidence. So you could put the word spiritual maturity. We grow in spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is not the, our, the ability to articulate with just such eloquence the truths of the gospel and, and all these people are listening to us and we have these really vibrant ministries. That's not necessarily the mark of Christian maturity. A mark of Christian maturity is that you consistently, with confidence, believe and act upon the truths that are evident to us and revealed to us in the gospel of Christ. When a thought of accusation comes, when we're mistreated, when we're depressed, when we're under attack and people are lying about us, we don't go to the temperature of the problems and the issues that are confronting us, we go to the temperature, so to speak, of the gospel. We say, wait a second. People are lying about me. People have taken things from me. I'm, I'm being misunderstood, but that doesn't change my identity in Christ, and that's the place where I derive my confidence before God. You could be hated by other people, you could be mistreated by them, even well-meaning believers. They could believe lies about you. They could be spreading lies about you. But our confidence and our value before God isn't connected to the opinions of others. It's connected to the truths of God's word. It must be. And so as we grow in confidence in those truths, as we give our mind to them year after year, season after season, see, this is why Christian perseverance is so important this isn't about getting excited for two or three months and like, wow, the truths of the gospel, and then it kind of fizzles out. This is about maintaining a commitment to the truth of God's word for many, many, many decades. And I don't just mean commitment to the truth of God's word on social issues or on morality. Yes, we want to be connected to those things, in addition to connected to the truth of how God sees us and what he says about us and that overriding our negative emotions and overriding the lies that we're tempted to believe. 
That is as, that is as important as it is to standing up for social and just causes. Both are important. But the believer that you can stand up for a social and just cause and say, I'm standing on the word of God and I'm taking a biblical stance on this. But in your mind, in your heart, if you don't take that with that same tenacity, with that same laying hold up, you don't take a hold of the truths of the gospel of Christ, your spirit will wither. You will come under so much heaviness, under so much depression and anxiety and, and just the, the monotony of life will get to you and your passion, your love for God will wane. And the Lord wants us to stay connected into the bonfire of this truth. It's like hooking our spirits into the nuclear reactor of God. We access the truths of God's grace. We access the power that transcend our circumstances of trial and difficulty and setback. We've got to access a greater power in God. The way that we do it is we turn on the lights to the truths of God's word, to the gospel. Lord, remind me again of these truths. Let me seal, see them. Let the, these truths penetrate my cold, darkened heart where I waver, you know, like the old hymn says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Lord, I'm prone to wander away from being rooted in the affections of God that are secured through the cross. And I've gotta be hooked in to this nuclear reactor of these truths and let it energize me and let it propel me and let it sustain me. The excitement of meetings, Christian meetings, the excitement of Bible studies where things are, you know, click clacking and we're connecting Bible verses together, the excitement of seeing signs and wonders and miracles, it is not enough to sustain the human heart over decades in perseverance. Coming to a service, listening to a good worship album, it is not enough the, the Christian exterior life is not enough to sustain and fascinate the human heart over decades. And these, these truths are, again, that nuclear reactor that empowers us, that brings life and energy to our spiritual lives in God. Paragraph C. Just a, a minute of review that helps to set the context of what we're looking at today. The Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. I mean, this is remarkable. The Father has given us the most important in the heart of God. These are the most important truths, the most important changes, and the most important effect of God on weak and broken human beings. This is what he's given to us. Many people are fixated on the blessings of God that happen in the exterior. I want to have a better life. I want to be more happy. I want my spouse to be happy. I want my kids to be happy. I want my ministry to go well, my business to go well. And those are good things to want and for, and for God to bless them. But the most important things are the spiritual blessings that come through us, that come to us through Christ. But often those are the most neglected things. Those are the things like, yeah, 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 we've got that. But those are the very things that cause that nuclear reactor life to flood into the heart and life of the believer. 
He goes, I've given you every spiritual blessing in Christ. I've brought you into Christ. I've brought you into the family. And then I've given you the most vital and important things. Some people approach the Bible, you know, like this roadmap. I don't think it's a, it's, it's not a bad analogy. I think it just breaks down because they're looking for the Bible to answer every single specific issue in their life. Like, should I give 11% or should I give 12%? What house should I buy? What dog should I buy? What should we name our dog? It's got to have this prophetic meaning. So we're seeking God for direction on these things. And that's not bad to do. That's not wrong to do. But the Lord wants to give us insight into the spiritual roadmap as the priority of our Christian lives. The spiritual blessings that come in Christ, I promise you, are far more important to grasp than like if we're supposed to name our dog Jehozadak or whatever it is. To be blessed before the Father means to be spoken well of and praised. And this occurs at the moment of the new birth. I mean, the very moment that the heart is surrendered to God and cries out, Lord, save me, deliver me. I don't, I don't have the strength to do it in my own. I need you, Jesus, the Savior. The moment that we put our trust and our confidence in God in that way is the very moment that the narrative over our life changes forever. And what the Father says about us in the heavenly places is to speak blessing and acceptance and favor over us the rest of our lives. That's his primary narrative over our lives. It's not one mostly of anger. It's not one mostly of disappointment. It's not like the Father is disappointed mostly over our life and going, just try a little harder, get your act together. Okay, you can do it this week. No, the narrative over your whole life radically changes because of the work of Christ that's appropriated, that's, that's put on to your life. And the Father speaks well of you and praises you. I mean, this is, if there's anyone that you want to praise you, it's the Heavenly Father. It really doesn't matter if you're praised, if you're liked, if you're enjoyed, if people think you're successful, if your mother-in-law likes you or not. Like, who cares? At the end of the day, you need the Father to think well of you and praise you. And that's only gotten and secured one way. It's not through your work. It's not through something that you bring to the table. It's through the work of Christ himself that's given to you freely and fully at the new birth. Credible. Paragraph two, holiness and the pursuit of divine pleasures. Now the father ordained Before the foundation of the world, it says in the beginning of verse four, he ordained that a people would be holy and without blame before him in love. That's what he set out to do. Even before Genesis one, even before he spoke the earth into existence and formed man and formed the woman out of man. He says, my whole intention is to bring them into a state of holiness and blamelessness before me. In other words, I want a family. He says, here's the problem. I'm divine and I'm transcendent and they're created. So we have the uncreated God looking at a created family and saying, I want them to partake in my holy, 
divine, eternal family, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there's a big problem. They're created. They're formed out of the dust of the world. They don't understand me. There's a massive void between the two of us, between that which is God, uncreated, and that which is not God, the created man. He says, another problem is I'm going to give this guy a free will. And he's going to be able to choose to love me or choose to reject me. I'm not going to force him to do it. And so because of that, we know the story, obviously. Man falls. He's separated from God. And yet the plan of the Father stands. And he says, I have a plan to bring about my purposes and to bring that which is not God, that which is created, that which is fallen and evil and in rebellion against me. I have a plan to bring them in to my holy family. I have a plan to bring them across that void that impassable void and bring them in to my eternal family, my eternal throne, my eternal existence, my, the order of who I am. He says, this is what I've intended to do. God has intended to escort the human family into the realm and the status of his holy and divine love. The holiness, holiness describes both a divine condition and a location. It's both a condition, it's set apart. The word holy means set apart, meaning it's removed from sin. It's removed from the oldness of man and worldliness. But it's also location because God is, wherever God is, that's a holy environment. That's why we have in the Old Testament, we have the holy place. There's holy there's holy moments. There's, you know, when Moses comes before the burning bush, the Lord says, take off your sandals for the place you stand. It's holy ground. There's a location that's made holy. It's, it's other than. It's where God is. And the Lord goes, I want to bring weak, broken, fearful sinners like us. He goes, I want to bring you into the location where I am that's holy. I've got a plan to do that. Paragraph B, a divine and impossible transference has incurred. Redeemed humanity has been carried across an impassable void, an infinite gap that's not just separated by time or space or morality as if we can get there on our own or we can get there by some other means. I mean, it's like going to, you know, if we got to, it's like, hey guys, we're going to go to the fifth dimension. It's like, well, how? There's no machine that exists to get to the fifth dimension. So you need someone from the fifth dimension to come and bring you to the fifth dimension. God's the only one that has the means. He has the proverbial technology to bring us to an entirely different dimension in him. I mean, so close to him, so knit into his heart and his family that the angels look at it and they go, this is a mystery. How can a God like you, and they know God really well, they've looked at him a lot, right? How can a God like you be able to bring weak, broken, sinful people like them into your very holiness? 
this is a mystery. It's the mystery of godliness. It's the mystery of the gospel. It's, this is an impossibility and yet made possible by the power of God through the cross. So he brings redeemed humanity across this gap of holiness and transcendence, which means other thanness. It's something totally unfamiliar. It's something that is so beyond the created order. It's so beyond the angelic. It is so beyond everything we see in heaven and earth and below the earth. It is to bring us into something that is entirely different from us, the holiness of God. We pass from that which is not God into that which is God through the cross. I mean, the change, the radical change of our posture before God, our, our condition, the, the essence of who we are as human beings that are dead, Ephesians 2 tells us, but now made alive in God. There is nothing that can make the human spirit alive in God except for God. It is an impossibility that you can't know the right information. Knowledge cannot transfer you into the holiness and transcendence of God. Your own morality, your own commitment to do what is right, even in accordance with the law of God, is not powerful enough to change and awaken the human spirit and bring it into the very location of where God is. And we'll find out later in the New Testament that it's not just about going to where God is, but God coming and living and dwelling inside of us as temples of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that another time. Look at this, Colossians 1 verse 3, Paul summarizes it here. It says, he has delivered us from the power of darkness. Now that's where we were. We were under the power, the reign of sin and darkness and evil. He says he's delivered us. There's no one else that has the strength to deliver the human heart from the power of darkness. There's no legislation. There's no leader. There's no way to get people out of the power of darkness. We can fix up the house on the inside, but at the end of the day, the foundation is crumbling if it doesn't deal with the power of darkness. Society is crumbling. Families are crumbling. The human heart is crumbling, not just because of their environment, but because of this issue. They are under the power of darkness. Darkness has free reign in their life. It drives their compulsions, it drives their decisions, it drives their activities, and there's nothing that that spirit, that human heart can do to break out of that apart from the power of God, delivering it, the blood of Jesus. And so we've been delivered out of darkness, but even more exciting than that is that we've been conveyed into something. We haven't just been saved out of hell to just continue living our lives. We've been saved into a purpose. We've been conveyed into something. Again, you've crossed that impassable void from death to life, from unholy to holy, from weak and broken and dead on the inside into alive in God and transferred into the family of heaven, into the court of heaven, into the throne room of heaven, 
onto his sea of glass. You can appear before his throne. And even now, Ephesians 2 tells us that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. We already have secured the victory because of the work of the cross. This is what is true about us today. It doesn't matter what your emotions are telling you. It doesn't matter how bad your relationships are. It doesn't matter how you know jacked up your life is and how you're prone to failure and discouragement and you sinned really bad. Those things do not change the legal position and the, the transformation that has occurred to you through the cross. We don't wanna ignore those things in our life, but those things do not get our family picture off the mantle of God. <laughs> He's conveyed us. He's transferred us into his kingdom. Now this place that we're describing, this transference into God is the holiness of God. What does it mean to be holy before God? And there's two parts. One is that we are made holy by the work of the cross, legally blameless before God. The second is we have to fill our mind with the truth of God so that our mind, our will, and our emotions agree with the work of the cross in our life. This is a very important distinction. God has both made us holy through the cross and we're being made holy as we grow in love. The victory is already ours. And now we're walking out the victory in this life. We're agreeing with the spirit of holiness. The delight of holiness should be the preoccupation of every Christian. It's because holiness is other thanness. It's agreeing with the full gamut. It's the agreement with the full plan and the truth of God over our lives. It's not just saying yes to moral principles, it is that, but it's actually more than that. To allow our minds to become holy is to adopt the framework, the mind of God, to see what he sees, to evaluate in the way that he evaluates, to see him the way that he wants to be seen and wants to be known. It's the transference of this life into a greater separatedness, in agreement with God's will and God's ways. God calls us to holiness because he himself is holy. That's why he wants us to be holy, because he wants us with him. And he wants us in agreement with him. Because of his holiness, God possesses the most high and pleasurable and exhilarating quality of life in existence, and he wants to share it with us forever. What I want us to see is the connection between the invitation of God and the power of God to bring us into holiness with the superior pleasures of God and experiencing them and delighting in them. God created every human being with a longing for pleasure and fascination. And often people feel guilty because in their hearts, they long for fascination. They long for pleasure. They long for greatness. They long for these things that are intrinsic to human design, and they're trying to repent of those longings for pleasure and joy and delight. 
Lord. And, and, and in their mind, it's like to, to really follow Jesus means that I'm going to have no emotions. I'm going to have no pleasure. I'm going to drink water and eat dry, crusty bread like some extreme monk. I'm going to brace this life of stoicism and shut down. And I'm going to shut down my emotions because they're getting the best of me. And it's this completely dim, frail, dusty form of Christianity. And that's seen as the holy life. And that is not the holy life at all. That, that, is, that paradigm is so wrought with lies that are not rooted in the truth of God. And the enemy wants to make the holiness and the pursuit of holiness like a magnet to the human spirit in terms of repelling it. And he wants to push us away from the pursuit of holiness. So we couch it in, well, it's legalism and it's the spirit of religion and I don't want the spirit of Jezebel. I'm not a Pharisee. So holiness isn't that great. Like, yeah, God's holy, but it's not really worth something pursuing because I don't want to be a bad witness for God. You know, here's the truth. Most of us, we're we're not doing great as it is. But it's like, well, I'm not going to be like known as a holy person because then people are going to be so intimidated by me and, Anyways, let's, let's look at this. <laughs> Page two. Holiness is a doorway. And what I mean by holiness is, holiness is not something we get apart from the grace of God or pursue a part of the grace of God, but we determine in our hearts, Lord, I'm gonna pursue holiness in my life. Holiness is that which is God. So I'm going to pursue that which is God operating in my finances and what I see and what I hear and the way I speak and the way I think, I'm gonna agree with the grace of God so that holiness touches my life and I'm coming to agreement with who God is. Without holiness, we can't enter into the joy and the delight of the Lord. We can't feast upon his riches without the pursuit, the commitment in our heart to pursue holiness. Because to pursue holiness, again, is not to just pursue an empty religious form. You can't set out and pursue holiness apart from God. God is holy. And so in pursuing holiness, you're pursuing God. That's who you're after. We're after him. We want Jesus, we don't want a form of dead religion with stoicism and kind of a frown on our face and go live out in the woods somewhere alone. That doesn't necessarily make us closer to God. We've got to pursue him. We've got to pursue the divine pleasures. And you know what Paul says in verse three, the verse above, we've got to pursue the spiritual blessings that come through Christ. That's why we pursue holiness. We must not approach holiness with a negative, in, a, in a negative way, with dread, this sense of fear, this sense of dejection, like, well, I guess, you know, kind of tried everything else in Christianity, so we're going to give holiness a shot. I guess I'm at that age. We're kind of like waiting till we get a little bit older, maybe, and it's like, I don't know, like when I'm 60 and... I've kind of lived my life, then I'll pursue holiness. It's like something that we shelve for a later time in life. 
Like, I want to be holy, but I don't want my grandkids to think I'm cranky. And I got to figure this out. Like, I don't know. Holiness doesn't keep us from pleasure, but it equips us to experience it. You want pleasure in God? You want to experience and walk in the joys of our freedom, the joy of our salvation? I mean, imagine... Imagine what would happen to the Christian witness in this city if a whole bunch of believers got convinced of the joy and the pleasure of knowing God. We wore it on our faces. Holiness didn't become a frown. It became a song. It did for Jesus. Psalm 45 says, you've loved righteousness. You've hated wickedness. Right, so, so holiness is loving that which is righteous, hating that which is, which is wicked, and it says this, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than all of your companions. The fruit of holiness is joy. The fruit of holiness is delight. And, and so if we're pursuing holiness and it's not resulting in divine joy, we're not really pursuing biblical holiness, we're probably pursuing some form of dry legalism that's devoid of the heart of Jesus. Paragraph F, many see holiness as the opposite of pleasure and satisfaction. To be a holy person means that I've only denied pleasure and satisfaction. No, you've denied the illicit ways in which the human heart has tried to pursue satisfaction and pleasure. But you've actually begun to pursue the spiritual pleasures and delights that come through the gospel of Christ by the Spirit. This is not, this doesn't just fall into our laps. You don't just wake up one day. We gotta get out of Christian armchair apathy. We've gotta get out of it. We've gotta go, wait a second. I can either live bored and dull as a Christian and just kind of like make it into heaven or I can experience God as much as humanly possible and store up forever a treasure and reward in the age to come that can't be taken away from me. But it takes effort. Relationships take effort. We don't just passively become mature believers. There's something that God is not going to do for us. And he's not going to force you to pursue a life of holiness and spiritual satisfaction in him. He's not gonna force you to do that. That's a determination we make. That's a choice we make. Wait a second. There's a whole bunch of spiritual riches out there Hidden, and I could go Proverbs 2. I could go seek for them as silver and hidden treasures, and I can discover the fear of God and the knowledge of God, and I could drink from the joy and the riches of Christ. I want to do that. That sounds like a good use of my time, but it does take time, and it does take intentionality. Many are wrongly convinced that pursuing holiness will leave. This is the, this is the big lie right here that pursuing holiness is gonna leave the human spirit bored, stoic, irrelevant, and unfulfilled. That's the big lie. The enemy presents this. 
He's convinced so many Christians of this. If you pursue holiness, you will be completely irrelevant to the people around you. What if you're called to be irrelevant? What's so bad about being irrelevant anyway? We know that the gospel is relevant. I'm not saying that the gospel is irrelevant, but if you're speaking and pursuing spiritual things, there are gonna be those around you and in your life that are not speaking or understanding spiritual things and that are not pursuing them. And in that way, you are irrelevant because you're from another age. You're from another God. You serve a different God, a different master. You're citizen of another kingdom entirely. And so why are we so compelled to have so much in relation to this world and the cares of this world? Why are we so compelled to resign the, the pursuit of holiness in the name of being relevant being fashionable, being relatable to a broken and dying world. They need to get onto the page of God. The broken, the sinful, they need to realize, we need to realize that we desperately need God and that nothing else is gonna satisfy us. Nothing else is gonna save us. I love this quote from Augustine. It says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. There's a restlessness that's pervasive within the Christian heart, within the non-Christian heart. There's a sense of restlessness There's this sense of, I I don't know if I'm pursuing the right thing because I have this gnawing sense of, of unfulfillment in my life. I don't know if I'm hitting the mark. I don't know if my life really has meaning, if my life really has purpose. And I I want to propose to us this morning to get a vision to pursue the holiness of God and seek after the divine pleasures that come in its pursuit. I don't know that most believers, again, I don't, I don't know every believer, and, but I don't know that most people, one, have a vision for that or two, have really even tried it for a few years in a row. You hear about it and you find people that have a lot of language of spiritual pleasures and spiritual joys and and delights in God, but I find the list even smaller of those that have actually experienced them, that have walked in them in any sort of, of consistency. And I don't say that to be condemning. I say that to say it's right in front of us, the buffet of God, the delight of God, the riches of God. They're right in front of us, and when we pursue them by reading the word of God, by studying it, by singing it, by, by believing it and speaking it over our own lives, something begins to unlock. It doesn't happen all day, every day, 
It's not going to just continue on from glory to glory to glory. No, there's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be seasons where we draw back a little bit, but the point is that we get a vision for it and begin to pursue it day in and day out. We set ourselves on a pilgrimage. I want to just touch on one thing. Let's uh, invite the worship team to come out. Down here in Philippians 2, about entering into blamelessness and, and holiness, Paul gives us three very important keys. I wanna leave us with these. Three keys. These keys are part of unlocking and experiencing the spiritual pleasures that come through Christ. Now, two of the keys are things that we're to avoid and not do. And one of the keys is something that we're to actively pursue. So Christianity is not just don'ts and do's, it's both. Paul says right here, Philippians 2, verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing. So these are the two warnings right here. Do all things, everything that you do, do it without complaint in your heart and do it without disputing with other people or disputing with God. Verse 15, that you may become blameless. See, now this is the transformation part of our life. We become blameless. We become holiness. At the same time at the new birth, we're made holy and we're made blameless legally, but our life, our, our mind, our emotions, our darkened emotions must be transformed by God, that you would become blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now here's the thing that he's working toward, verse 16. This is the thing that we're to do. We must hold fast to the word of life. So we avoid complaining, which is a disagreement with God's leadership. That's ultimately what complaint is. I don't like the way things are. I don't like where you've set me. I don't like my job. I don't like my spouse. I don't like my friends. I don't like my kids. I don't like my dog, Jehozadek. I don't like any of that. All right, so complaint is a disagreement with God's leadership. And what we're saying is you've put me in a place or in a circumstance where I can't be fully pleasing to you, where I can't experience fulfillment and delight. You're a bad leader. That's what complaint says. So Paul goes, avoid that. Let's just not do that. And then he goes, avoid disputes. A dispute is when we agree, not just disagree with God's circumstances in our life. That's complaint. We disagree with the relationships in our life. Now we're disputing with them. You know, when Adam gets into trouble in the garden, he goes, you know, well, you know, this woman that you gave me, I mean, ladies, you gotta hate that verse. Men, we're ashamed of that verse. It's in there. But I mean, that's the spirit of dispute. Like, who did you give me? It's not just a spouse. It's our coworker relationships. It's People within our church community, we're disputing with them. We're, we're in a spirit of argument and debate with them. 
Paul goes, set that aside too. These two things, they're, they're stealing away from you the joy and the delight of the gospel. They're stealing away from you experiencing the superior pleasures. And he says, this is the thing that you walk in. Hold fast to the word. Hold fast to the word of life. Cling to it like it's your life raft in the midst of the storm. I mean, hold on to that thing and don't let it go. You go through a a time of real pain. Don't let it go. Cling fast to the word of life. Cling fast to the truths of the gospel. Cling fast to what God has said about you and over you in your life. Cling fast. Cling fast. I mean, there's a sense of desperation there. There's a sense of I've got no other options. If I let go of this, I just, I sink in despair. I cling fast. Well, how long are you supposed to cling? You cling fast during the weekend message? You cling fast the year after Bible school? When do, how long do you cling fast? You cling fast until you hear that seventh trumpet and Jesus appears in the sky and gives you your resurrected body. That's how long you cling fast. You don't let go. You don't let go. You don't cling to other people. You don't cling to other ideas. You don't cling to other value systems of what it means to be successful. You don't cling to your spouse in this sense. You must cling to the truth of God's word. That's the only safe place. All right, let's stand. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Sunday Sermon. For more information, service times, and free teaching resources, visit forerunnerchurch.com.